from the North Africans' criminal impulsiveness to the war of national liberation. Fighting for the freedom of one's people is not the only necessity. As long as the fight goes on you must re-enlighten not only the people but also, and above all, yourself on the full measure of man. You must retrace the paths of history, the history of man damned by other men, and initiate, bring about, the encounter between your own people and others. In fact the aim of the militant engaged in armed combat, in a national struggle, is to assess the daily humiliations inflicted on man by colonial oppression. The militant sometimes has the grueling impression he has to drag his people back, up from the pit and out of the cave. The militant very often realizes that not only must he hunt down the enemy forces but also the core of despair crystallized in the body of the colonized. The period of oppression is harrowing, but the liberation struggle's rehabilitation of man fosters a process of reintegration that is extremely productive and decisive. The victorious combat of a people is not just the crowning triumph of their rights. It procures them substance, coherence, and homogeneity. For colonialism has not simply depersonalized the colonized. The very structure of society has been depersonalized on a collective level. A colonized people is thus reduced to a collection of individuals who owe their very existence to the presence of the colonizer. The combat waged by a people for their liberation leads them, depending on the circumstances, either to reject or to explode the so-called truths sown in their consciousness by the colonial regime, military occupation, and economic exploitation. And only the armed struggle can effectively exorcise these lies about man that subordinate and literally mutilate the more conscious-minded among us. How many times in Paris or X, in Algiers or Bastère have we seen the colonized vehemently protest the so-called indolence of the black, the Algerian, and the Vietnamese? And yet in a colonial regime if a fellow or a zealous worker or a black were to refuse a break from work, they would be quite simply considered pathological cases. The colonized indolence is a conscious way of sabotaging the colonial machine, on the biological level it is a remarkable system of self-preservation and, if nothing else, a positive curb on the occupier's stranglehold over the entire country. The resistance of the forests and swamps to foreign penetration is the natural ally of the colonized. Put yourself in his shoes and stop reasoning and claiming that the nigger is a hard worker and the towelhead great at clearing land. In a colonial regime the reality of the towelhead, the reality of the nigger, is not to lift a finger, not to help the oppressor sink his claws into his prey. The duty of the colonized subject, who has not yet arrived at a political consciousness or a decision to reject the oppressor, is to have the slightest effort literally dragged out of him. This is where non-cooperation or at least minimal cooperation clearly materializes. These observations regarding the colonized disposition to work could also be applied to the colonized attitude toward the colonizer's laws, his taxes, and the colonial system. Under a colonial regime, gratitude, sincerity, and honor are hollow words. Over recent years I have had the opportunity to verify the fundamental fact that honor, dignity and integrity are only truly evident in the context of national and international unity. As soon as you and your fellow men are cut down like dogs there is no other solution but to use every means available to re-establish your weight as a human being. You must therefore weigh as heavily as possible on your torturer's body so that his wits, which have wandered off somewhere, can at last be restored to their human dimension. During the course of recent years I have had the opportunity to witness the extraordinary examples of honor, self-sacrifice, love of life, and disregard for death in an Algeria at war. No, I am not going to sing the praises of the freedom fighters. 
A common observation the most hardline colonialists have not failed to note is that the Algerian fighter has an unusual way of fighting and dying, and no reference to Islam or paradise can explain this spirit of self-sacrifice when it comes to protecting his people or shielding his comrades. Then there is this deathly silence, the body of course cries out, the silence that suffocates the torturer. Here we find the old law stating that anything alive cannot afford to remain still while the nation is set in motion, while man both demands and claims his infinite humanity. One of the characteristics of the Algerian people established by colonialism is their appalling criminality. Prior to 1954 magistrates, police, lawyers, journalists, and medical examiners were unanimous that the Algerians' criminality posed a problem. The Algerian, it was claimed, was a born criminal. A theory was elaborated and scientific proof was furnished. This theory was taught at universities for more than 20 years. Algerian medical students received this education, and slowly and imperceptibly the elite, after having consented to colonialism, consented to the natural defects of the Algerian people, born idlers, born liars, born thieves, and born criminals. We propose here to expound this official theory, to recall its basis and scientific reasoning. In a second stage we shall review the facts and endeavor to reinterpret them. The Algerian is an habitual killer, it's a fact, the magistrates will tell you, that four-fifths of the cases heard involve assault and battery. The crime rate in Algeria is one of the highest in the world, they claim. There are no petty delinquents. When the Algerian, and this applies to all North Africans, puts himself on the wrong side of the law, he always goes to extremes. The Algerian is a savage killer, and his weapon of choice is the knife. The magistrates who know the country have elaborated their own theory on the subject. The Kabyles, for example, prefer a revolver or shotgun. The Arabs from the plains have a preference for the knife. Some magistrates wonder whether the Algerian does not have a need to see blood. The Algerian, they will tell you, needs to feel the heat of blood and steep himself in his victim's blood. These magistrates and police officers very seriously hold forth on the connections between the Muslim psyche and blood. 38 A number of magistrates even go so far as to say that killing a man for an Algerian means first and foremost slitting his throat. The savagery of the Algerian manifests itself in particular by the number of wounds, many of them inflicted unnecessarily after the victim's death. Autopsies undeniably establish this fact, the killer gives the impression he wanted to kill an incalculable number of times given the equal deadliness of the wounds inflicted. The Algerian is a senseless killer, very often the magistrates and police officers are stunned by the motives for the murder, a gesture, an illusion, an ambiguous remark a quarrel over the ownership of an olive tree or an animal that has strayed a few feet. The search for the cause, which is expected to justify and pin down the murder, in some cases a double or triple murder, turns up a hopelessly trivial motive. Hence the frequent impression that the community is hiding the real motives. Finally, robbery by an Algerian is always breaking and entering, in some cases involving murder, in every case involving assault of the owner. All these elements focalizing on Algerian criminality appeared sufficiently evident to support an attempt at systematization. Since similar, though less implicit, observations had been conducted in Tunisia and Morocco, reference was increasingly made to a North African criminality. For more than 30 years, under the constant direction of Professor Porat, Professor of Psychiatry at the Faculty of Algiers, several teams worked on defining this criminality's modes of expression and offering a sociological, functional, 
and anatomical interpretation. The main research work on the question conducted by the Psychiatric School of the Faculty of Algiers will be the basis for our conclusions. Research findings conducted over more than a 20-year period were the subject, we recall, of lectures given by the Chair of Psychiatry. Consequently the Algerian doctors who graduated from the Faculty of Algiers were forced to hear and learn that the Algerian is a born criminal. Moreover I remember one of us in all seriousness expounding these theories he had learned and adding, it's hard to swallow, but it's been scientifically proved. The North African is a criminal, his predatory instinct a known fact and his unwieldy aggressiveness visible to the naked eye. The North African loves extremes so you can never entirely trust him. Today, your best friend, tomorrow your worst enemy. He is immune to nuances, Cartesianism is fundamentally foreign to him and moderation, a sense of proportion and level-headedness, are contrary to his inner nature. The North African is violent, hereditarily violent. He finds it impossible to discipline himself and channel his instincts. Yes, the Algerian is congenitally impulsive. But, they tell us, this impulsiveness is highly aggressive and generally homicidal. This explains, they say, the unorthodox behavior of the melancholic Algerian. French psychiatrists in Algeria were faced with a difficult problem. They had been trained to fear suicidal tendencies in a patient suffering from melancholia. The melancholic Algerian, however, kills. This disorder of the moral conscience, which is always accompanied by self-accusation and suicidal tendencies, in the Algerian takes the shape of homicidal instincts. The Algerian suffering from melancholia does not commit suicide. He kills. This is the homicidal melancholia elaborated by Professor Porat in the thesis of his pupil Montserrat. How does the Algerian school account for this anomaly? Firstly, according to the school of Algiers, killing oneself is tantamount to examining one's own feelings, looking at oneself and practicing introspection. The Algerian, however, rebels against his inner feelings. There is no inner life in the North African. On the contrary, the North African rids himself of his troubles by attacking the people around him. He has no sense of analysis. Since by definition melancholia is a disorder of the moral conscience it is obvious the Algerian can only develop pseudo-melancholias given the unreliability of his conscience and the fickleness of his moral sense. This incapacity of the Algerian to analyze a situation, to organize a mental panorama, makes perfect sense if we refer to the two types of causality proposed by the French psychiatrists. First of all, his mental capacity. The Algerian is mentally retarded. If we want to fully understand this basic point of departure, we must recall the semiology elaborated by the School of Algiers. The native, it says, presents the following characteristics. Complete or almost complete lack of emotivity. Highly credulous and suggestible. Doggedly stubborn. Childlike mentality minus the curiosity of the European child. Prone to accidents and pithyatic reactions 39. The Algerian is unable to grasp an overall picture. The questions he asks himself are always concerned with details and rule out any synthesis. Pointillistic, attracted to objects, lost in details, insensitive to ideas, and close to concepts. Verbal expression is reduced to a minimum. His movements are always impulsive and aggressive. Incapable of interpreting details on the basis of the overall picture, the Algerian absolutizes the component and takes one part for the whole. 
As a consequence his reactions are generalizing when confronted with minor provocations or trivialities such as a fig tree, a gesture, or a sheep on his land. The congenital aggressiveness looks for outlets and is content with the slightest pretext. It is aggressiveness in a pure state.40. The school of Algiers abandoned the phase of description for the next stage of clarification. It was in 1935 at the Congress of French-speaking psychiatrists and neurologists in Brussels that Professor Perrot was to define the scientific basis for his theory. Discussing Baruch's report on hysteria he indicated that the North African native whose cortex and reflexes are poorly developed, is a primitive being whose essentially vegetative and instinctive life is primarily governed by his diencephalon. In order to gauge the importance of this discovery by Professor Perrot we should recall that the characteristic which differentiates the human species from other vertebrates is the cortex. The diencephalon is one of the most primitive parts of the brain and man is above all the vertebrate governed by the cortex. For Professor Perrot the life of the North African is governed by the diencephalic agents. This is tantamount to saying that the North African in a certain way is deprived of a cortex. Professor Porat does not evade this contradiction and in the April 1939 issue of Sud Medical et Chirurgical he states, in collaboration with his pupil Sutter, currently Professor of Psychiatry in Algiers, primitivism is not a lack of maturity, an interrupted development of the mental psyche. It is a social condition which has reached the end of its evolution and is a logical adaptation to a life different from ours. Lastly, the professors address the very basis of the doctrine, this primitivism is not only a condition resulting from a specific upbringing, its foundations go far deeper, and we believe its substratum must lie in a specific configuration of the architectonics, or at least of the dynamic hierarchical organization of the nervous system. We have observed that the impulsiveness of the Algerian, the frequency and nature of his murders, his permanent criminal tendencies and his primitivism are no coincidences. We are in the presence of a coherent pattern of behavior and a coherent lifestyle which can be explained scientifically. The Algerian has no cortex, or to be more exact, like the inferior vertebrates he is governed by his diencephalon. The cortical functions, if they exist, are extremely weak, virtually excluded from the brain's dynamics. There is therefore neither mystery nor paradox. The colonizer's reluctance to entrust the native with any kind of responsibility does not stem from racism or paternalism but quite simply from a scientific assessment of the colonized limited biological possibilities. Let us end this overview by requesting Dr. Carruthers, an expert from the World Health Organization, to conclude with his findings throughout Africa. This international expert collected his primary observations in a book published in 1954.41. Dr. Carruthers practiced in Central and East Africa but his findings match those of the North African school. For the international expert, the African uses his frontal lobes very little. All the peculiarities of African psychiatry can be envisaged in terms of frontal idleness. 42. In order to make his point clear Dr. Carruthers establishes a very vivid comparison. He puts forward the idea that the normal African is a lobotomized European. We know that the English-speaking school believed they had found a radical therapy for treating certain serious mental illnesses by practicing surgical incision in the front of the brain. This method has been abandoned since discovering the major damage it caused to the personality. According to Dr. Carruthers the similarity between the normal African and the lobotomized European is striking. After having studied the work of various researchers practicing throughout Africa, Dr. Carruthers gives us a conclusion that establishes a uniform concept of the African. These are, he writes, 
the data of the cases that do not fit the European categories. They are culled from several parts of Africa East, West, and South, and, on the whole, the writers had little or no knowledge of each other's work. Their essential similarity is therefore quite remarkable. 43. Before concluding it is worth pointing out that Dr. Carruthers defined the Mau Mau revolt as the expression of an unconscious frustration complex whose recurrence could be scientifically treated by radical psychologically appropriate methods. So it was the unusual behavior such as the Algerians' recurring criminality, the triviality of the motives and the murderous and always highly bloody nature of the quarrels that posed a problem for observers. The proposed explanation, which is now taught as part of the curriculum, seems in the last analysis to be as follows, the configuration of the North African's brain structure accounts for the indolence of the native, his mental and social inaptitude as well as his virtual animal impulsiveness. The criminal impulsiveness of the North African is the transcription of a certain configuration of the nervous system into his pattern of behavior. It is a neurologically comprehensible reaction, written into the nature of things, of the thing which is biologically organized. The idleness of the frontal lobes explains his indolence, his crimes, his thefts, his rapes, and his lies. And the conclusion was given to me by a sous prefet now prefet, these instinctive beings, he told me, who blindly obey the laws of their nature must be strictly and pitilessly regimented. Nature must be tamed, not talked into reason. Discipline, tame, subdue, and now pacify are the common terms used by the colonialists in the territories occupied. The reason why we have dealt at length with the theories by the colonialist scholars is not so much to demonstrate their paucity and absurdity as to address an extremely important theoretical and practical question. Algerian criminality, in fact, was given relatively little attention among the questions which the revolution was confronted with and the issues which were raised during discussions on political enlightenment and demystification. But the few debates on the subject were so constructive that they enabled us to examine further and better identify the notion of individual and social freedom. When the question of Algerian criminality is broached with leaders and militants in the heat of revolution, when the average number of crimes, misdemeanors and thefts in the period prior to the revolution are brought to light, when it is explained that the physiognomy of a crime and the occurrence of misdemeanors are based on the relationships between men and women, between man and the state, and everyone gets the message, when we see the notion of the Algerian or North African as born criminal dislodged before our very eyes, a notion which was also planted in the Algerians' consciousness because after all we are a bad, quick-tempered, aggressive people, and that's the way we are, then yes, we can say the revolution is making progress. The major theoretical problem is that the insult to man which is in ourselves must be identified, demystified and hunted down at all times and in all places. We must not expect the nation to produce new men. We must not expect men to change imperceptibly as the revolution constantly innovates. It is true both processes are important, but it is the consciousness that needs help. If the revolution in practice is meant to be totally liberating and exceptionally productive, everything must be accounted for. The revolutionary feels a particularly strong need to totalize events, to handle everything, to settle everything, to assume responsibility for everything. The consciousness then does not balk at thinking back or marking time, if need be. This is the reason why as a combat unit progresses in the field the end of an ambush does not mean cause for a respite but the very moment for the consciousness to go one step further since everything must work in unison. Yes, 
the Algerians spontaneously acknowledged the magistrates and police officers were right. 44 This narcissistic aspect of Algerian criminality as a manifestation of genuine virility had to be tackled again and reconsidered in the light of colonial history. By showing, for example, how the criminality of the Algerians in France fundamentally differed from the criminality of the Algerians directly subjected to colonial exploitation. A second aspect caught our attention. In Algeria, criminality among Algerians occurred practically in a closed circle. The Algerians robbed each other, tore each other to pieces, and killed each other. In Algeria, the Algerians seldom attacked the French and avoided quarreling with them. In France, however, the immigrants' criminality crossed boundaries between communities and social categories. In France Algerian criminality is diminishing. It is mainly directed at the French and the motives are entirely new. One paradox, however, helped us considerably to get the militants to understand that since 1954 common law crimes have virtually disappeared. Gone are the quarrels, the disputes over minor details ending in homicide. Gone the explosive fits of rage because the neighbor caught sight of my wife's forehead or left shoulder. The national struggle appears to have channeled all this anger and nationalized every effective and emotional reaction. The French magistrates and lawyers had already noted this, but the militant had to be made aware of it and understand the reasons. We now had to find an explanation. Could it be said that the war, the privileged terrain for expressing finally a collective aggressiveness, directs congenitally murderous acts at the occupier? It is common knowledge that significant social upheavals lessen the occurrence of misdemeanors and mental disorders. The existence of a war which was breaking Algeria in two and rejecting the judicial and administrative machine onto the side of the enemy was therefore a perfectly good explanation for this decline in Algerian criminality. In the countries of the Maghreb already liberated, however, this was true during the liberation struggles and remained so to an even greater degree during independence. It is therefore apparent that the colonial context is sufficiently original to afford a reinterpretation of criminality. This is what we have done for the militants. Today everyone on our side knows that criminality is not the result of the Algerian's congenital nature nor the configuration of his nervous system. The war in Algeria and wars of national liberation bring out the true protagonists. We have demonstrated that in the colonial situation the colonized are confronted with themselves. They tend to use each other as a screen. Each prevents his neighbor from seeing the national enemy. And when exhausted after a 16-hour day of hard work the colonized subject collapses on his mat and a child on the other side of the canvas partition cries and prevents him from sleeping, it just so happens it's a little Algerian. When he goes to beg for a little semolina or a little oil from the shopkeeper to whom he already owes several hundred francs and his request is turned down, he is overwhelmed by an immense hatred and desire to kill and the shopkeeper happens to be an Algerian. When, after weeks of keeping a low profile, he finds himself cornered one day by the Kaid demanding his taxes, he is not even allowed the opportunity to direct his hatred against the European administrator, before him stands the Kaid who excites his hatred, and he happens to be an Algerian. Exposed to daily incitement to murder resulting from famine, eviction from his room for unpaid rent, a mother's withered breast, children who are nothing but skin and bone, the closure of a worksite and the jobless who hang around the foreman like crows, the colonized subject comes to see his fellow man as a relentless enemy. If he stubs his bare feet on a large stone in his path it is a fellow countryman who has put it there, and the meager olives he was about to pick, here are X's children who have eaten them during the night. Yes, 
During the colonial period in Algeria and elsewhere a lot of things can be committed for a few pounds of semolina. One can kill. You need to use your imagination to understand these things. Or your memory. In the concentration camps men killed each other for a morsel of bread. I can recall one horrible scene. It was in Orne in 1944. From the military camp where we were waiting to embark, the soldiers threw bits of bread to some Algerian children who fought for them in a frenzy of rage and hatred. A veterinarian could no doubt explain these events in terms of the famous pecking order noted in farmyards where the corn is bitterly fought over. The strongest birds gobble up all the grain while the less aggressive grow visibly thinner. Any colony tends to become one vast farmyard, one vast concentration camp where the only law is that of the knife. In Algeria, everything has changed since the War of National Liberation. The entire reserves of a family or mecha can be offered to a passing company of soldiers in a single evening. A family can lend its only donkey to carry a wounded fighter. And when several days later the owner learns the animal was gunned down by a plane he will not sling curses or threats. Instead of questioning the death of his donkey he will anxiously ask whether the wounded man is safe and sound. Under a colonial regime, no crime is too petty for a loaf of bread or a wretched sheep. Under a colonial regime, man's relationship with the physical world and history is connected to food. In a context of oppression like that of Algeria, for the colonized, living does not mean embodying a set of values, does not mean integrating oneself into the coherent, constructive development of a world. To live simply means not to die. To exist means staying alive. Every date grown is a victory. Not the result of hard work, but a victory celebrating a triumph over life. Stealing dates, therefore, or allowing one's sheep to eat the neighbor's grass is not a disregard for property rights or breaking the law or disrespect. They are attempts at murder. Once you have seen men and women in Kabylia struggling down into the valley for weeks on end to bring up soil in little baskets you can understand that theft is attempted murder and not a peccadillo. The sole obsession is the need to fill that ever-shrinking stomach, however little it demands. Who do you take it out on? The French are down on the plain with the police, the army and their tanks. In the mountains there are only Algerians. Up above, heaven with its promises of an afterlife, down below the French with their firm promises of jail, beatings and executions. Inevitably, you stumble up against yourself. Here lies this core of self-hatred that characterizes racial conflict in segregated societies. The criminality of the Algerian, his impulsiveness, the savagery of his murders are not, therefore, the consequence of how his nervous system is organized or specific character traits, but the direct result of the colonial situation. The fact that the Algerian patriots discussed this issue, that they were not afraid to challenge the beliefs inculcated in them by colonialism, that they understood each was a screen for the other and in reality they were committing suicide by pitting themselves against their neighbor, was to have an immense impact on the revolutionary consciousness. Once again, the colonized subject fights in order to put an end to domination. But he must also ensure that all the untruths planted within him by the oppressor are eliminated. In a colonial regime such as the one in Algeria the ideas taught by colonialism impacted not only the European minority but also the Algerian. Total liberation involves every facet of the personality. The ambush or the skirmish, the torture or the massacre of one's comrades entrenches the determination to win, revives the unconscious and nurtures the imagination. When the nation in its totality is set in motion, the new man is not an a posteriori creation of this nation, 
but coexists with it, matures with it, and triumphs with it. This dialectical prerequisite explains the resistance to accommodating forms of colonization or window dressing. Independence is not a magic ritual but an indispensable condition for men and women to exist in true liberation, in other words to master all the material resources necessary for a radical transformation of society. Conclusion Now, comrades, now is the time to decide to change sides. We must shake off the great mantle of night which has enveloped us, and reach for the light. The new day which is dawning must find us determined, enlightened and resolute. We must abandon our dreams and say farewell to our old beliefs and former friendships. Let us not lose time in useless laments or sickening mimicry. Let us leave this Europe which never stops talking of man yet massacres him at every one of its street corners, at every corner of the world. For centuries Europe has brought the progress of other men to a halt and enslaved them for its own purposes and glory, for centuries it has stifled virtually the whole of humanity in the name of a so-called spiritual adventure. Look at it now teetering between atomic destruction and spiritual disintegration. And yet nobody can deny its achievements at home have not been crowned with success. Europe has taken over leadership of the world with fervor, cynicism, and violence. And look how the shadow of its monuments spreads and multiplies. Every movement Europe makes bursts the boundaries of space and thought. Europe has denied itself not only humility and modesty but also solicitude and tenderness. Its only show of miserliness has been toward man, only toward man has it shown itself to be niggardly and murderously carnivorous. So, my brothers, how could we fail to understand that we have better things to do than follow in that Europe's footsteps? This Europe, which never stopped talking of man, which never stopped proclaiming its sole concern was man, we now know the price of suffering humanity has paid for every one of its spiritual victories. Come, comrades, the European game is finally over, we must look for something else. We can do anything today provided we do not ape Europe, provided we are not obsessed with catching up with Europe. Europe has gained such a mad and reckless momentum that it has lost control and reason and is heading at dizzying speed towards the brink from which we would be advised to remove ourselves as quickly as possible. It is all too true, however, that we need a model, schemas and examples. For many of us the European model is the most elating. But we have seen in the preceding pages how misleading such an imitation can be. European achievements, European technology and European lifestyles must stop tempting us and leading us astray. When I look for man in European lifestyles and technology I see a constant denial of man, an avalanche of murders. Man's condition, his projects and collaboration with others on tasks that strengthen man's totality, are new issues which require genuine inspiration. Let us decide not to imitate Europe and let us tense our muscles and our brains in a new direction. Let us endeavor to invent a man in full, something which Europe has been incapable of achieving. Two centuries ago, a former European colony took it into its head to catch up with Europe. It has been so successful that the United States of America has become a monster where the flaws, sickness, and inhumanity of Europe have reached frightening proportions. Comrades, have we nothing else to do but create a third Europe? The West saw itself on a spiritual adventure. It is in the name of the spirit, meaning the spirit of Europe, that Europe justified its crimes and legitimized the slavery in which it held four-fifths of humanity. Yes, the European spirit is built on strange foundations. 
the whole of European thought developed in places that were increasingly arid and increasingly inaccessible. Consequently, it was natural that the chances of encountering man became less and less frequent. A permanent dialogue with itself, an increasingly obnoxious narcissism inevitably paved the way for a virtual delirium where intellectual thought turns into agony since the reality of man as a living, working, self-made being is replaced by words, an assemblage of words and the tensions generated by their meanings. There were Europeans, however, who urged the European workers to smash this narcissism and break with this denial of reality. Generally speaking, the European workers did not respond to the call. The fact was that the workers believed they too were part of the prodigious adventure of the European spirit. All the elements for a solution to the major problems of humanity existed at one time or another in European thought. But the Europeans did not act on the mission that was designated them and which consisted of virulently pondering these elements, modifying their configuration, their being, of changing them and finally taking the problem of man to an infinitely higher plane. Today we are witnessing a stasis of Europe. Comrades, let us flee this stagnation where dialectics has gradually turned into a logic of the status quo. Let us re-examine the question of man. Let us re-examine the question of cerebral reality, the brain mass of humanity in its entirety whose affinities must be increased, whose connections must be diversified and whose communications must be humanized again. Come brothers, we have far too much work on our hands to revel in outmoded games. Europe has done what it had to do and all things considered, it has done a good job, let us stop accusing it, but let us say to it firmly it must stop putting on such a show. We no longer have reason to fear it, let us stop then envying it. The third world is today facing Europe as one colossal mass whose project must be to try and solve the problems this Europe was incapable of finding the answers to. But what matters now is not a question of profitability, not a question of increased productivity, not a question of production rates. No, it is not a question of back to nature. It is the very basic question of not dragging man in directions which mutilate him, of not imposing on his brain tempos that rapidly obliterate and unhinge it. The notion of catching up must not be used as a pretext to brutalize man, to tear him from himself and his inner consciousness, to break him, to kill him. No, we do not want to catch up with anyone. But what we want is to walk in the company of man, every man, night and day, for all times. It is not a question of stringing the caravan out where groups are spaced so far apart they cannot see the one in front, and men who no longer recognize each other, meet less and less and talk to each other less and less. The third world must start over a new history of man which takes account of not only the occasional prodigious theses maintained by Europe but also its crimes, the most heinous of which have been committed at the very heart of man, the pathological dismembering of his functions and the erosion of his unity, and in the context of the community, the fracture, the stratification and the bloody tensions fed by class, and finally, on the immense scale of humanity, the racial hatred, slavery, exploitation and, above all, the bloodless genocide whereby one and a half billion men have been written off. So comrades, let us not pay tribute to Europe by creating states, institutions, and societies that draw their inspiration from it. Humanity expects other things from us than this grotesque and generally obscene emulation. If we want to transform Africa into a new Europe, America into a new Europe, then let us entrust the destinies of our countries to the Europeans. They will do a better job than the best of us. But if we want humanity to take one step forward, 
if we want to take it to another level than the one where Europe has placed it, then we must innovate, we must be pioneers. If we want to respond to the expectations of our peoples, we must look elsewhere besides Europe. Moreover, if we want to respond to the expectations of the Europeans we must not send them back a reflection, however ideal, of their society and their thought that periodically sickens even them. For Europe, for ourselves and for humanity, comrades, we must make a new start, develop a new way of thinking, and endeavor to create a new man. On retranslating Fanon, retrieving a lost voice. I suppose I first met Franz Fanon when I went to Africa, to Senegal in 1968 as an English teacher. At the age of 23 I was a naive young Englishman leading a sheltered life who was about to discover the meaning of underdevelopment and colonization. My vision of Africa was nil and I had as much insight into Senegalese society as a brochure at a travel agent. Rereading some of the notes I made at the time I appeared to be more interested in finding a fan, buying a moped and renting an apartment than what was going on around me. The fact that the school textbooks I had to use talked about daffodils and snow or that half of my 40 pupils to a class fell asleep at 3 in the afternoon when the thermometer reached 40 degrees Celsius seemed odd but it took me two years of teaching to put two and two together and confront the issues of underdevelopment and colonization. My political consciousness was aroused and I returned home with more questions than answers, one of them being, what on earth am I doing here? To paraphrase Bruce Chatwin, Eight years after independence Senegal still had all the trappings of a French colony and Dakar was a compartmentalized world, which Fanon described so vividly in the opening chapter on violence and the wretched of the earth. This was the world I was destined to work in, live in, and play in, and the other sector, the native sector, could only be glimpsed through the windows of the embassy's chauffeur-driven car or perhaps when we strayed on our mopeds into areas where friends working for the American Peace Corps used to live and when at embassy receptions or dinner parties the conversation would inevitably revolve around them, the others, it was, as Fanon says, often couched in zoological terms, referring to the odors, the stink, the hordes, the swarming, seething, sprawling population vegetating under the sun. The year was 1968 and, true to the assimilation of a French colony, Senegal mimicked the events of May 1968 in France, except they lasted for an entire year and both school pupils and university students deserted their classrooms in a vague attempt to change the order of their world and forge ahead with a genuine decolonization. But this was no revolution in the Fanonian sense and the students were content merely to sit and wait, instead of blowing the colonial world to smithereens and creating an agenda for total disorder. Just south of Senegal's border, in Guinea, Sikou Touré's resounding no to France, which met with admiration and applause from Third World revolutionaries, evidently had little chance of repeating itself in Senghor, Senegal. My second encounter with Fanon must have been on my return to France in 1971. One year before Britain joined the common market I was not only forced to apply for a work permit, but also undergo a series of medicals, mandatory for immigrants from non-member European Union countries. Most of the immigrants, of course, were from North Africa, and Algeria in particular. And it was here I witnessed that very special relationship, based on humiliation and contempt, that exists between the French and the Algerians. We were all made to line up in front of a nondescript building near the Boulevard Peripherique and once inside, submitted to a series of humiliating medical examinations that would allow us to apply for a work permit at another line at the Paris Prefecture. It was obvious that all the clichés about the Algerians' criminal impulsiveness, his indolence, 
his thefts, his lies and rapes, which had been inculcated into the French bureaucrats' minds before, during, and after the Algerian War, rose to the surface and treatment was dealt out accordingly. There was a long way to go before that colossal task, described by Fanon, of reintroducing man into the world, a man in full, could be achieved with the crucial help of the European masses who still rallied behind the position of their governments and media on colonial issues. My third encounter with Fanon came with my many visits to Martinique and Guadeloupe, the island contexts that were to shape and mold the young Fanon. The sheer assimilation to France's cultural, educational, and political penetration not only turned him into a French intellectual, the New York Review of Books in 1966 described him as a black Rousseau, his call for national revolutions is Jacobin in method, Rousseauist in spirit, and Sartrean in language altogether as French as can be, but also forced him to question and challenge the very nature of the colonized subject. The alienation of his black-skinned, white-masked fellow islanders made him realize that if colonialism was not fought and defeated, then the islands of Martinique and Guadeloupe would disappear, swallowed up by the tide of assimilation. He somehow sensed that the bravado of the Martinicans was a lot of hot air, that they would never rise up against their colonizers and he'd do better to put his ideas into practice in the French department of Algeria where the men had the guts of their convictions. On his return from his final visit to Martinique in 1951, Alice Cherky, France Fanon, Portrait, Paris, Editions du Soy, 2000, quotes him as saying, I met more Milkaos than men. Commenting on the tragic events of 1959 in Martinique to his friend Bertine Juminer while in Tunis, he told him, let them pick up their dead, rip their insides out and parade them in open trucks through the town. Let them yell out, look what the colonialists have done. But they won't do anything of the sort. They'll vote a series of symbolic motions and start dying of poverty all over again. In the end, this outburst of anger reassures the colonialists. It's merely a way of letting off steam, a bit like a wet dream. You make love to a shadow. You soil the bed. But the next morning everything is back to normal. And you don't think any more about it, praisance Afriken, first semester 1962, homage à France Fanon, p. 127. Any visitor from outside France visiting the French islands of the Caribbean is immediately struck by the overwhelming presence of a metropolis 7,000 kilometers away, the extraordinary alienation of a petite bourgeoisie more attuned to France than their own destiny, and he or she cannot but admire Fanon's lucidity. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why he has studied more in the universities of the English-speaking world than in France and the French Caribbean where the skeletons of the Algerian War and the color hierarchy, respectively, are too close for comfort. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why Fanon's latest biographer, David Macy, and his new translator are two Englishmen, two islanders, who not only understand Fanon's love-hate, off-again-slash-on-again relationship with France, but are also fascinated by the only French-speaking Caribbean intellectual who, as Edward Glissant says, really matched action to words by espousing the Algerian cause, Le Discours Antier, Paris, Editions du Soy, 1981, p. 36. As David Macy says, it was his anger that was so attractive. After all we Brits have a long history of angry young men. And then there is the way he has been treated, pulled in all directions by postcolonial scholars, made to fit their ideas and interpretations, and a great sense of injustice comes to mind every time Fanon is mentioned. So this brings me to why I have crusaded for a new English translation of Fanon. 
first of all I was tired of people asking me if I translated anyone else besides Maurice Condé. But more important, I felt the need to challenge my skills at translating another type of text, one that defined as a theory the subject matter of alienation, colonization, and the color complex in so many of the French Caribbean novels I had already translated. Secondly, I felt that Fanon's had not done him justice. I felt that his voice had got distorted and he should be given a second chance to be heard. John Felstener wrote in his book Translating Neruda, the way to Machu Picchu that perhaps the real original behind any translation occurs not in the written poem, but in the poet's voice speaking the verse aloud, a translator may also pick up vocal tones, intensities, rhythms, and pauses that will reveal how the poet heard a word, a phrase, a line, a passage. What translation comes down to is listening. I have the good fortune to be in possession of a tape of Fanon's address to the first Congress of Black Writers and Artists in Paris in 1956. I have listened to that tape over and over again, and although Fanon's voice is not particularly charismatic, in fact it is rather bland, I was struck by the way he uses language and the emphasis he places on many of the words. He hammers his thoughts home in a very precise, cut-and-dried manner. There is even the slightest hint of hysteria, a controlled anger, of someone who would not like to be contradicted, perhaps even the voice of an accorch vif, a tormented soul, as Francis Jeanson thought of him. Otto Sekiatu, who wrote Fanon's Dialectic of Experience, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Harvard University Press, 1996, argues that we should read Fanon's texts as though they form one dramatic dialectical experience rather than considering his statements irrevocable propositions and doctrinal statements. With what immensely complex and compelling force Fanon's texts speak to us when we read their contents as speech acts in the moving body of a dramatic narrative. And there is drama behind his voice born out of urgency as he worked against the clock. Knowing that Les Donnés de la Terre had been dictated to his wife during his final year, I used the oral tone I had captured over the tape in my translation of The Wretched of the Earth and endeavored to make it read more like an oral presentation with that earnestness of voice he was known for. In fact the many repetitions and lyrical, not to say delirious, digressions in Les Donnés de la Terre are proof of a man dictating his text with the knowledge that he has little time left to live and desperate to put his thoughts, every single one of them, down on paper. In his preface to the first edition of Peau Noir, Masks Blanc Francis Jeanson tells how one day he wrote to Fanon asking for clarification of a particularly obscure passage in the book. An answer was duly furnished and Fanon added, This passage is inexplicable. When I write such things I seek to touch my reader in his emotions, i.e., irrationally, almost sensually. Further on in his letter Fanon goes on to confess how he is drawn to the magic of words and that for him language is the ultimate refuge, once it is freed from conventions, from its voice of reason and the terror of coming face to face with oneself. Words for me have a powerful effect. I feel it impossible to escape from the sting of a word or the vertigo of a question mark. He went on to say that, like Césaire, he wanted to sink beneath the stupefying lava of words that have the color of quivering flesh. When it came to translating Fanon I was constantly aware of the man as a doctor, as a humanist and an intellectual from the third world. He would never let me forget it. His use of the human anatomy to illustrate the colonized behavior can be seen throughout his work. I now had to develop a strategy for my own translation. I had a choice of keeping the rather heavy, pompous style and language of the 1950s or deciding to update and modernize it without losing Fanon's voice. I had in mind a young reader who would be swept along by Fanon's thoughts in the language of the 21st century. 
Without betraying Fanon I decided to tighten up the text, update the vocabulary, and retrieve his lost voice. One of the translation problems I had to settle, which came up time amd time again throughout the text, was the translation of colon, the European inhabitant of a colony once the colonization process has got underway. I was tempted to use the word colonizer since it sounded right pitted against the word colonized. But a colonizer composes the original force that colonized the country and does not convey the meaning of the European who settled, lived, worked, and was born in the colony. Colonial has two different associations, one for the English, especially in East Africa, and one for the Americans, pertaining to the 13 British colonies that became the United States of America or to that period. Settler was being used by the media in the Mideast crisis to refer to the Jewish settlers and would be the immediate reference for a reader. I first decided on a compromise between the French word colon and the English colonist and coined colonist. My editor, however, decided otherwise, and we kept the word colonist. I felt that by keeping the word colon the term not only spoke to the English-speaking reader but also remained faithful to Fanon, for whom Algeria was the constant point of reference. Colon, Gendarme, Metropoli, Maquis, Indigene, the Arabic terms of Sof, Zar, Jebel, Donar, Romi, Razia, Fela and Jama. All words from a French colonial context, all terms from an Algerian context which, however hard Fanon tries to universalize, bring us back to his country of origin and his country of adoption. And finally there is that word dreaded by all translators of French Caribbean texts, Negra, Constance Farrington did not deal with the problem or perhaps she didn't have to at the time, she merely translated negra and noir by the word negro, which was accepted usage in the 1950s and 60s, and in the process lost a subtle difference. But if the translator decides to update and modernize his vocabulary, then he is faced with a sticky issue. In Randall Kennedy's fascinating book Nigger, The Strange Career of a Troublesome Word, New York, Pantheon Books, 2002, he cites Professor Clarence Major as saying that when it is used by black people among themselves it is a racial term with undertones of warmth and goodwill, reflecting a tragicomic sensibility that is aware of black history. It is also the filthiest, dirtiest, nastiest in the English language. The word negro would have been used in the same way by Fanon, the Martinican, whether referring to the black man in general or putting it in the mouth of the oppressor as an insult. It was a word rehabilitated by the black intelligentsia of the time and thrown back at the European as the supreme weapon. One of the great achievements of Césaire's epic poem Notebook of a return to my native land is to reappropriate the negative term and give it a positive meaning. In Pour la Révolution Africaine, toward the African Revolution, in the chapter Antillé at Afrikan Fanon describes how the word negro was used for the Africans by both Europeans and French Caribbeans alike. He quotes the example of a boss in Martinique demanding too much from his employee and getting the response, Si vous voulez un negre, allez le chercher en Afrique, if you're looking for a nigger, go and find him in Africa. To quote a more modern example of this, we only have to look at the opening lines of Chris Rock's signature skit, I love black people, but I hate niggers. Every time black people want to have a good time, niggers mess it up. It wasn't until Césaire came along that for the first time, we saw a lycée teacher, and therefore an apparently worthy man, simply tell West Indian society that it is good and well to be a nigger. Of course it was a scandal. And Fanon ends his chapter on national culture with the words, there can be no such thing as rigorously identical cultures. 
To believe one can create a black culture is to forget oddly enough that Negroes are in the process of disappearing, since those who created them are witnessing the demise of their economic and cultural supremacy. Now that the vocabulary has evolved it places the translator in a 21st century predicament. I have updated the word Negro, when he refers to the peoples of Africa or the diaspora, to black, and used nigger when it is the colonizer referring to the same. In some cases, I have left Negro in its historical context. But I have lost something in the translation of the word negra, for it is both a sting and an embrace, and that is irretrievable. I have modernized the word indigene to colonized or colonized subject, ridding it of today's pejorative sense of native although fanon, in keeping with the colonial vocabulary of his time, uses both terms indifferently in the very same paragraph. So how relevant is fanon today? I can remember going into the Fanoc bookstore in Paris last year to buy an edition of Les Données de la Terre and being asked, Fanon? How do you spell it? Oh yes, here we are, as the girl consulted her computer, Les Dames de la Terre. Fanon obviously hasn't left his mark here, I thought, and moved on. But how far can we move on and forget him? We cannot forget the martyrdom of the Palestinians when we read in Fanon's chapter on violence, at the individual level, violence is a cleansing force. It rids the colonized of their inferiority complex, of their passive and despairing attitude. It emboldens them and restores their self-confidence. We cannot forget the lumpen proletariat, the wretched of the earth, who still stream to Europe from Africa, Iraq, Afghanistan, and the countries of the former Eastern Bloc, living on the periphery in their shanty towns and refugee centers, waiting for a better life. The bourgeoisie in Africa still unreservedly and enthusiastically adopt the thinking mechanisms characteristic of the West, still is alienated to perfection its own thoughts and grounded its consciousness in typically foreign notions, still turns its back on the majority of its population, vacationing on the French Riviera and building colossal palaces for prestige's sake, joining hands in this huge caravan of corruption and becoming, as Fanon says, a bourgeois bourgeoisie that is dismally, inanely, and cynically bourgeois and his thoughts on culture differentiating Africa from the Americas, visioning the disappearance of black culture in favor of national cultures, regarding traditions basically stifling whereas a culture is constantly changing, modernizing, and penetrated by other influences. He was wrong of course on many points, especially Pan-Africanism, the role of the peasantry in leading a revolution, and the fate of Algeria. But at the time, his analyses of alienation and decolonization were extraordinary eye-openers, not only for a complacent Europe but for his fellow islanders, blinded to reality. It is his anger, conviction, and humanism that will always remain with us. So this has been my fourth encounter with Fanon, and perhaps the most intimate. The other three were encounters with the others, the colonized, the colonial subjects. This time I had come face to face with the man himself and had to take on the extraordinary task of gaining access to the author's voice and meaning, and initiating communication with the target audience. The very fact that I had lived in Africa, France, and the French Caribbean helped enormously in understanding the society and culture that had shaped and influenced Fanon. But I no longer had the good fortune to be able to pop into the next room and ask him what exactly he meant in such and such a paragraph as I can when translating Maurice Condé. I had accompanied him on his life's journey, but the closest I could get to the man himself was being in the company of Bertine Juminer, Asia Jabbar, Roland Thesauros, Edward Glissant, Madame Christiane Diop of Présence Africaine, and Aimé Césaire, all of whom had crossed his path. 
you might think that translating the dead gives you a whole lot of freedom there's nobody there looking over your shoulder or making rude comments. But in fact there are crowds of people looking over your shoulder, from the readers of the original translation to the post-colonial scholars who have staked their reputation on Fanon's ideas. Translating a dead man means stepping very warily through a minefield littered with the debris of another time and another translation. But the very fact of looking back was a driving force to modernize the text and look ahead. In Fanon's case, translating the dead was a case of translating life itself. I felt I had to bring a dead translation back to life. To quote John Felstener on Salon, he hoped that in translating Salon's poems he felt something akin to what Salon felt writing them. Retranslating Fanon, rewriting Fanon almost gives me the same kick. As if I am the one writing down his thoughts in English for the first time. And then there is that secret feeling that married to a writer from Guadeloupe, from the French Caribbean, I have always known Fanon and understood his dilemma and ambition as a Martinican. No one sums up this personality of the French Caribbean better than Aimé Césaire and Hommage à France Fanon published in Presence Africaine in 1962. Perhaps Fanon reached such heights and his vision was so broad because he was a French Caribbean, in other words he had started off so far down and from such a narrow base. Perhaps only a French Caribbean, in other words one so destitute, so depersonalized could have set off with such determination to conquer himself and plenitude, only a French Caribbean, in other words one so mystified to start off with, could manage to dismantle with such skill the most elusive mechanisms of mystification, only a French Caribbean, finally, could want so desperately to escape powerlessness through action and solitude through fraternity. Richard Philcox, 